Hey listeners, quick question. Are you tired of overpaying for your mobile plan? I've got the answer. Ting Mobile. Ting Mobile is all about flexibility and savings. You only pay for what you use, no crazy fees or overages. It's perfect for those who want control over their phone bill without sacrificing quality. Say goodbye to bloated phone bills. Go to milwaukeemafia.com slash ting. Ting Mobile. Mobile that makes sense. You're listening to Milwaukee Mafia, your weekly podcast dose of Wisconsin Mafia and true crime history. Hi, and welcome back to the Milwaukee Mafia podcast. I am not Eric Walterkins. I am Gavin Schmidt. <laughs> and uh, yes, Eric is not with us today, but we have a very special guest. Would you like to introduce yourself, guest? Hi, I'm Justin Cassio, and I write the blog Mafia Genealogy. All right, yes. I'm very excited to have Justin with us today. Been a longtime fan of the website. Every time that he posts a new link on Facebook, I'm like 30 seconds later, I'm clicking on it, waiting to see what he's got up next. So this is going to be a good talk. If you're interested in mafia history or specifically mafia genealogy, this talk is for you. If you're not, well, you know, maybe next time. But I think you're going to find something you like. It's going to be fascinating. So how are you doing, Justin? I'm so flattered to be your first guest, Gavin. I'm really looking forward to our talk. Well, thank you. You were the first person who came to mind. There's a couple others that I, you know, I'm thinking about, but I haven't even asked anybody else yet. So we're going to start off right off the bat just to get the hard question out of the way. Ooh. You are a person of Italian descent. Yes. On my father's side. Mm -hmm. Can you give me some crap for my pronunciations? I will not give crap for Italian pronunciations because I am so unqualified to do so. Uh, I'm so unqualified. <laughs> for generations, my family has been unqualified. I don't speak any Italian. Like at all. My father failed Italian in high school, and his parents before him would only ever speak Italian in order to argue in front of the rest of us without us understanding. <laughs> and the, the family lore is that my grandmother's Italian was some either ancient or tiny dialect and was completely unintelligible to anybody else, especially modern speakers of Italian, that the only other person in the world who understood my grandmother's Italian was my grandfather. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you. I was going to say, I, I get some crap sometimes, and this is the problem when you learn primarily by reading instead of hearing, is you don't always make the correct assumptions about the pronunciations. And that's not just Italian, that's anything. Mm -hmm. And uh, here, here, here in Wisconsin specifically, there's like a running joke where they'll have people visiting from out of state and they'll show them lists of Wisconsin city names. Mm -hmm. And anybody outside of the state has no clue how to pronounce them. Oh, yes, absolutely. Yeah, the same thing here in Massachusetts. Yeah, it's, na it's natural to us, but you show somebody a Conomawak and they're like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> so, all right. Got that out of the way. I can absolve myself of a little blame for now. <laughs> so, yes. So, mafia genealogy. So, we're going to start at the very beginning. Okay. The question is, were you interested in the mafia growing up and then became interested in genealogy? Or were you a family historian first and then realized you could connect it to the mafia? Which way did it go for you? It was the second one. Okay. The first time I ever heard the name of the town where my family is from 
Corleone in Sicily was from my grandmother, and it was a completely foreign word. I had never heard it, um, and I was way too young to make the connection to The Godfather. It was much, much later that I heard the name again in that context. And then it was an even longer time after that before I became interested in family history. Okay. What really like sparked combining these two things? Huh. Well, um, I was doing family genealogy like a lot of people in midlife crisis will do <laughs> to answer the sort of fundamental, uh, the big questions. Why am I here? Who brought me here? To who else do I owe uh, a debt of gratitude? Mm -hmm. At least of my attention to know what their life was what they were, what their names were, anything about them. Uh, so I was doing that kind of research. And my father's side of the family from Corleone, the genealogy is actually pretty easy. I did not realize how easy I was getting off um, because the records are terrific. Uh, so I was able to make connections really fast. I took that a bit for granted after a while because I was just doing it full speed. I was, I was recording all these relations, cousins, etc. And um, putting together the story of my family's immigration and the family that that came to the United States and settled in New York. One member of the family stayed behind and they uh, produced olive oil, which they sent to New York. And my family in New York sold the olive oil. At least that's the story that I was told in my family. Okay. That one that stayed behind, her first cousin, who was her husband, his mother was a Morello. And somewhere along the line, I had heard of Giuseppe Morello, probably doing a little bit of um, just really rudimentary Italian history research to, to put the family in a context. And so I was like, hmm, that name, I wonder. And I just started to uh, see if there was, if they were, if the two of them were connected. Uh, I'd never tried to do any genealogy on anybody outside my family before, but I, I looked up Giuseppe Morello and figured out who in fact he was, who his parents were and so forth. And um, it turns out that my relatives husband and Giuseppe Morello were first cousins. Sure. I'm going to jump in for just a second. For many of our listeners, they're not diehard mafia fans. Yeah. So I'm just I'm just going to clarify for people. Giuseppe Morello is this really top-level mobster in early New York City. If you want to read more about him, obviously Justin's website is a good resource. There's also a book called The First Family by Mike Dash, mm -hmm. which is a great book. And Giuseppe Morello, the Terranovas, there's a few other top-level mobsters who, as it turns out, as you'll probably hear throughout this discussion, all tie into what Justin does. Because they all come from the same town and because we're all related. And I say we because these gangsters that I've been researching, Giuseppe Morello or Jack Dragna, the Piranio brothers, Totorina, I mean, really any of the gangsters that you can name who are from Corleone are related somehow. Uh, that Morello who I'd noticed was his aunt. And so it brought these um, stories just a little bit closer together. I've got this mysterious story about olive oil sales, which I got to tell you, I don't really 100% believe. Okay. This connection to Giuseppe Morella. I mean, the family's settled in the same part of New York. And who knows? Like, it's a plausible story, although I don't have any proof for this, that it wasn't olive oil at all. It could have been counterfeit U.S. dollars coming in jugs of olive oil. Uh, it could have been really anything at all going on under the guise of um, a story about olive oil. Right. Right. I guess that kind of leads into another one of the questions I uh, I had for you was, we're talking about Corleone. I know that's really your focus. Do you think that Corleone is sort of the average example that you could have had? Or did you pick the, I guess you didn't pick, I mean, it was a city that was given to you, mm -hmm. but did you end up with the city that 
is the city to follow for this sort of thing? I got to say yes. I, I mean, you could certainly make the argument for a few other cities in, in Sicily. Castellamare, you know, would be up there where, mm-hmm. where the Bananos are from. Or Termini and Marisi, perhaps, or Palermo. But Corleone, to me, really exemplifies the origins of the mafia because – and here theorists disagree, but there's a really there's a really strong case for the mafia having evolved in what are called the latifundi, which is the enormous plantations that cover the interior of Sicily. So not the Conca d'Oro, which is where the citrus was irrigated and grown outside of Palermo, but farther inland, where the soil is not as good and where it's very rocky. Corleone is up on a mountain top. They had a whole other economy. And you might say, uh, and society and and, um, opportunities for local middlemen to obtain certain monopolies and to um, extort. Okay. And yeah, that is that is a little different than the standard story of it sort of originating in either the citrus groves, like you said, or partially in the prison system. Mm-hmm. But nobody really knows for sure. So, <laughs> yeah. But like you said, it's a it's a good starting point for jumping off to different areas. You had mentioned uh, Jack Dragna, mm-hmm. who is Los Angeles. There's a strong connection to New Orleans mm-hmm. through the Corleone links. You're finding people in Chicago. I mean, just about everywhere that there was mafia or is mafia in the United States. I think that the the story is one of chain migration. Um, there are just certain places where a critical number of people from one town went, and they drew their friends, their family to come after them, and so they tended to um, cluster and dominate certain areas. Mm-hmm. Uh, like the way you found that most of the mafia, the early mafia in Milwaukee, was from Santa Flavia. The Genovese family, the Lucchese family, and uh, the Gambino family were originally gangs that were mostly from Corleone. And those are three of the big five New York City mafia families. Right. Uh, And then you find little clusters of early mafiosi in New Orleans, in Los Angeles, in Chicago, sort of a a pre-outfit little uh, Sicily arrangement there. And Texas was a big place for uh, mafia from Corleone. Sure. So you you kind of mentioned it with the chain migration and and yes and I agree completely with with what you're saying there. So I think we already both know the answer, but just just to throw this out there, do you think the mafia or certain mafia clans, uh, mafia families, do you think they picked which cities they wanted to end up in, or was it just a matter of where all their relatives were going and they kind of followed through? Well, that's a good question. I mean, let's take a look at the Morello Terranova family. They went to New York, where they definitely had people, and then they went south when the economy tanked to see if they couldn't find another opportunity in Louisiana, and then that wasn't really to their taste, so they went to Texas, uh, and then they wound up back in New York again. So some people did move around and try and find a better opportunity, and you you certainly see um, uh, Sicilians mafia and not go back and forth between Sicily and the United States, where they would try their luck in a different place. For instance, uh, Jack Dragna's father, before the family went to New York, and that's where Jack mostly grew up, his father went to New Orleans first, because that's where a lot of men would travel alone to go do agricultural labor. Uh, there were some families that immigrated there too, but there were that, that was one of the places where you would find a lot of just in the single, not, when I say single, I mean unaccompanied adult men doing labor in the South. 
Sure. So he did that once. And what people would do is they'd go multiple times and they would um, accumulate a bit of a nest egg. Uh, and then they would. the dream was that you would make enough money in America that you could buy yourself a little piece of land back in Sicily where your family was, where you wanted to be. But that didn't always work out that way. I think a lot of Sicilian immigrants' fortunes were about the chance of when they made the immigration and what opportunities they found. And the mafia was not different in that regard. They would not so much choose where they were going to go as bloom where they were planted. Okay. Yeah. And and the reason I bring that up is just to kind of tie it back to like the Milwaukee situation, since it's what I'm most familiar with. And I, I don't tend to believe that the mobsters really cared anything about Milwaukee. It's just where the people from that particular town settled, with the story being they settled there because they thought it would be a great place for fishing, not realizing that half the year, you don't really want to go out fishing. So mm. I, obviously, New York is a different case because New York was sort of where everybody came at first. But I wonder how many places ended up having mafia families, not so much because it was a place that was lucrative, as it was just where they thought that was, in general, not crime-related. They thought there was some kind of a, an opportunity there. You know, even with the Morello family, when they were going to seek out an opportunity, I don't think that they were looking for ripe pickings for extortion and kidnapping schemes or the mm. best place to set up their counterfeiting operation. I think that they really were looking for jobs. At least the, that seems to be what motivated the Morello family to move around. Okay. All right. Next question on the list. You ready? Yeah. You've done a really good job tracing back early criminals in Corleone, like brigands and, and highway robbers and things like that. How do you go about that? How do you find sources for early Sicilian, well, early Sicilian anything, really? I mean, where do we non-Italian speakers find those sort of resources? If you don't speak Italian, you're going to have to learn to read Italian. Okay, so there is yeah. that. Some of the individual brigands that I was able to research were mentioned in secondary sources that were mafia histories. So books like you were mentioning, like Mike Dash, where he's going to have a section where he talks about the origins of the mafia before he gets into the New York scene. Any other history like that, and some of them spend more time in Sicily than others, uh, will mention some of the earliest recorded incidences that look like or, or are explicitly labeled mafia. So one of those people who gets mentioned really early on is uh, Luca Patti, son of Giuseppe of Corleone, who runs uh, a cattle rustling operation. And so I was able to identify Valuca Patti, who is the son of Giuseppe, and find out who the first recorded mafia boss in Corleone is. That's who he is. Okay. Further back, um, I got lucky. I found some police records, and they weren't even very extensive, but they happened to cover a period in the um, early 1830s when there was another gang of cattle rustlers. Cattle rustling was a very big mafia activity in Corleone. You can compare it to car theft today. It's really about taking property that's expensive and mm -hmm. kind of movable and not necessarily with the intention of consuming it, but of selling it back to the original owner at a markup. <laughs> Uh, so the gang from the 1830s uh, wrote about them on my blog, and I called them the Rapunzino Gang because when one of its members was killed, that was his nickname, Rapunzino, which means the abductor. And uh, his name, including his nickname, was written very large in the death records. And so I thought he was the most important member of the gang because he had a cool nickname and uh, because it was written so large. But when I went back mm -hmm. to my notes from the police, um, it was actually led by the Palumbo brothers. And um, almost all of the members of this gang were young men, unmarried, 
from Corleone, and a lot of them were related to one another. Okay. The police cracked down on them. They must have made somebody mad, and uh, and they killed almost all the members of the band. Uh, but what I find significant about this cattle rustling gang is that if I look at their families, and I did, and their descendants, I find a lot more mafia members and associates in the succeeding generations after the Palumbo brothers gang was exterminated. Okay, so you've got these police records from the 1830s and now this is this is what I want to know. Where did we find things like that because I I've heard, you know, through the secondary sources about them compiling lists of gang members or mafia members like in the 1880s, things like that, but I don't know where we get these lists. Well, when you um when you look at those secondary sources, uh, I always look at their sources. And some of them are uh, reports Mm -hmm. that were generated by the Italian Senate. Those are really good resources uh, because they will uh, name names. Sometimes they'll give you more information that makes it possible for you to identify them. Okay. And that's something like we can request or? Those are online. They are. Yeah. They're online. Okay. (laughs) Well, see, that shows what I know. (laughs) All right. So... Now, I don't know if if this is public knowledge or not, but on top of the blog, you have been working for some time into turning this into a book form. Yeah. um, For the last few years, I've been trying to create an academic book about the uh, origins of the mafia that focuses on its origins and organization. The reason I bring it up is, as I'm sure you recall... I was given a sample chapter to look at, so I'm a little Mm -hmm. familiar with the material. And you have like a brand new way, or maybe not a brand new way, but new and fresh from a lot of the traditional ways of looking at how people are linked. And can you talk about that, not necessarily in relation to the book, but just in general, like how you're linking people that they maybe never thought about linking before? Uh, Sure. Yeah, there's a couple of different ways that I think I'm looking at connections amongst mafia associates that are not always employed. One of them is that I look at their family members, which I think that the criminal justice system doesn't like to do so much because they're not suspected of a crime necessarily. But I think that the relationships are still important. Uh, And then the other way is um, that I I take the relationships, whether I'm looking at kin or uh, collaborators, and I use what is uh, a science called network analysis, a social network of a mafioso and who they work with or who they're related to. And I'm able to uh, learn certain things about his community from who knows who. Okay. Can you expand on uh, the network analysis? It sounds very technical, but if we can keep it in terms that the audience will understand. Sure. Here's a couple of things that are important about a network analysis. If I'm drawing, what I do is I draw this map and it looks like a bunch of little dots all connected to one another with lines. And there are some dots that have a lot of lines going to them. And there are some dots that are more isolated. They're, they're connected to very few other dots. And the dots are the people. Okay. And so if there's a person that has a lot of connections to other people, that is a certain kind of what we call centrality. But it's a dangerous sort of centrality. Because if you're a mafioso and you have lots and lots of other connections, this actually makes you more vulnerable to arrest. Uh, And that's based on a study that was done of uh, some Hells Angels. Hmm. But there's another kind of centrality where you are the person who mediates a lot of important relationships. So you are not necessarily connected directly to the most important people, but you have a line between them. 
And so um, that is a different kind of importance. You can use this power in a lot of ways because it's kind of inside information. And then uh, at the same time, it's not as dangerous as being the one that everybody knows is popular. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there was actually uh, a report not too long ago. I don't know if you saw this or not, but a a team took that... uh that FBN, the Federal Bureau of Narcotics Mafia book, and they like charted out all the connections within the book on a map. And it's, you know, it's very rudimentary, but it was interesting to see what it all looked like when everybody was connected by a line. And that's not exactly what you're talking about, Mm -hmm. but it's sort of that similar thing where you can kind of see where the clusters are, where there's more activity between people when you see like the more things connected. Yes. Uh, but yeah, this also sounds kind of dangerous, too, because it sounds like you're what, well, not not necessarily dangerous, you know, but but it sounds risky in that to do this the way you're talking. It sounds like you have to bring in people who are basically innocent people other than maybe knowing the wrong people. Yeah. I mean, just because you wind up in one of my charts doesn't mean you're a gangster or that you committed a crime. It just means that you're mm-hmm. very close to them. Right. But I'm saying that it could it could be taken the wrong way. Sure. Yeah, I can see people assuming that just because you're very close to a mafioso means that you're also guilty or implicated in their crime somehow. But of course, that isn't true. Okay. Just say we're just as long as as long as we're clear about that, because I absolutely agree with you. I mean, I I can tell just from all the things that I've read that there are, and this is I don't want to be stereotypical here, so please, you know, knock me down if I say something out of line. But there is that sort of traditional Sicilian Italian cultural value where you do have tighter links to your family than you do, you know, than the average American would. So that, you know, if somebody who is otherwise innocent knows something or can connect people, they're trustworthy just because of the way that culture sees that, that they're, they'd rather defend somebody who did something wrong than turn them in if they were a family member. Yes. Am I speaking out of line there? No, this has definitely been observed by others before you, there's, and there's a lot of truth in it. I, in fact, I don't think that most modern Americans are prepared to understand just how alien that traditional Sicilian culture is. Even modern-day Sicilian Americans are not necessarily prepared to understand what family dynamics were like for our own families three or four generations ago. Mm-hmm. There definitely is a culture, and I'm told that this is a frowned upon term, but the term is immoral familism, which means everything's cool as long as it benefits the family. That is the only right versus wrong. Uh, It's right if it helps our family. It's wrong if it hurts our family. That's it. That's where the morality starts and ends. And obviously, that's a really narrow way of looking at what's good and bad, but it's also really fundamentally at odds with a Western way of looking at what's right and wrong, which is that you apply the same rules to everyone. Mm -hmm. A very different value system, that that traditional system where um, how you get things done is through a system of patronage, godfathers and clientele relationships. It's about knowing the middlemen who know how to get things done, knowing somebody who can just breeze into the clerk's office and get you a certificate or a license or whatever it is that you need, you know, sure. and when you want a job, you get, you get it through the same kinds of networks, your uncle gets you a job or your godfather or somebody like that. And that's not the way that we're supposed to do things in America. And right. so really are at odds, those, those two sets of values. Yeah, and and I mean you're you're alluding to like the the padrone system, and I'm sure I'm saying that wrong, but 
but uh, but the, you see it in general too. Like you'll if you look at enough records of people pursuing naturalization, citizenship, you'll see the same name signing as witness again mm-hmm. and again. There's certain guys in the community who you go to when you need you need yes. that assistance. Yes, I always track those people down too. When I'm doing research on a gangster, whoever signed off as a an affidavit of witness to say, yeah, I've known this guy and he's been in the country for such and such years or whatever, mm-hmm. they're suspects in me. I know that that's not an, it's not enough to us. I can't assign guilt to somebody just because he signed off on you know citizenship paperwork for a gangster, but I do look askance at that guy. It's like if you've known him for five years, why don't you know? that he's the lead mafioso in Milwaukee or whatever. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, in the, in the case of Milwaukee, one guy who's, I've seen his name come up again and again, I'm not even going to say what his name is because I've never connected him to anything criminal, Mm -hmm. but he's, he's signed off on dozens of these guys and he ran the local banking system. I don't even know if it was a real bank Mm -hmm. or just like a community bank they had set up, but he was a prominent person in the community. I don't know that he did, ever did anything wrong, but he seemed to know a lot of the questionable people. Yeah. And, you know, I guess that there's um there is a distinction that I would have to make, which is um, I'm not a police officer. I don't work for the DA's office. I'm not actually concerned with whether somebody broke the law, especially most of these people that we study that have been dead for 20, 40 years or longer. But what sure. I'm interested in is how the mafia worked as a great big system. And somebody like you're describing, who is a banker to the local Sicilian community, that's a padrone. That's what you're describing. Mm -hmm. And maybe he never broke the law in the United States ever in his life, but he's still of interest to me as somebody who who studies the mafia, because that's, that's an important working part of how the mafia happens in America. Yeah. And I agree with that a hundred percent. I'm just saying, I try to be careful about it just because you run into situations. I don't, maybe you don't run into this, but I do because I, I'm out there giving talks on occasion mm-hmm. and people who you're talking about their grandparents, even if they have been deceased 30 years, some people still get offended. So I'm really careful not to bring up names and and even be loose about the linkages unless I'm absolutely clear about it just because I'm trying not to offend. And maybe that's maybe that's on me. Maybe I'm too sensitive, but it's just I try to avoid it. But I agree 100 percent with what you're saying. It's these people in the community that make the system work, whether that's, you know, whether they're even aware of it or not. Sure. And more to the, and more than that, I mean, if you are a padrone, you're somebody who is in leadership of the mafia. I mean, there are other people who make the mafia work who do that by being victims, you know, like Omerta doesn't help anybody when it means that you're getting extorted and you can't go to the cops. You just have to pay. Mm -hmm. You're helping to keep the mafia going. That's true. (laughs) Okay. Are you ready for the most important question (laughs) of the entire interview? Absolutely. Well, what a build up. Can you explain the role of pallbearers in how you do networking. Ah, pallbearers. So funerals and baptisms and marriages are are like the three meals of my day uh, in vital records because they're they're public, they're chosen, and they have tremendous significance. It's a religious ceremony for one thing. These are the people that bring you into the community of God and take you out of it again. Marriage is how you literally make another family. So who gets chosen in these ceremonies is very important because it tells you all of the values of that family. When you are a new parent and you choose godparents for your baby, you are 
not that you're not so much setting up an important relationship between mm. that baby and those two adults that are her godparents. The relationship that really shows you is between the parents and the godparents. That's who has that trusting bond. And um, with a pallbearer, these are the people that the family chose as being most close to the decedent and having supported him in life. And it can't be the close family itself because those people are grieving. Um, so they go to those other people. And a lot of times it's fairly close family, but it's another step removed. It's not the brothers or the sons. It's the nephews or the grandsons. And um, and they ask them to do this, to take on this responsibility. And you can't say no. It's one of those things. And in Chicago, when somebody really important in local Italian politics died, they would watch that funeral to see who was walking in front because a lot of times they were signaling who is going to be taking over their uh, level of power and their position mm -hmm. in that community. It tells me who is important to that family. And so it is the kind of thing that I will, um, if the subject was important enough or if they seemed to be prominent in society just because of how big their funeral was, I will track down the pallbearers and find out how they're related. The chapter, if I'm not mistaken, that I sent you from my draft was about a tech was about Texas and the mafia there. Right. I had done this with the funeral of a Leo Luca Petronella who died in Bryan, Texas in 1934 or 35. And I had never seen such a big funeral before. He had six regular pallbearers, as you would expect, but then he had 24 named honorary pallbearers in his obituary. And so that that's a really, uh, it's so uncommon that it was likely to be significant. And so I tracked them all down. I found out who they all were and I drew uh, a network map uh, of, of their connections to see where the clusters were. And then something else you can do with network analysis is you, you draw this, this diagram of all these relationships, including the person who has died. And then since he's the most important person that everybody else is connected to, you can take him out of the diagram and see what's left. And that can be very revelatory. Uh, I can show you uh, what the clicks are, the clusters are of power. And here's the thing about Leo Luca Petronella. It wasn't just that he was a grocer who had 30 pallbearers mm -hmm. in a little rural town in Bryan, Texas, right? That two of them were narcotics traffickers who within five years would be arrested with a who's who of the mafia of the Gulf Coast. Right. So that network was not just grocers and, you know, friends from the old country. It included two narcotics traffickers that we know of. And so I am supposing, and this is just one small piece of that proof, that that network of grocers who were um, such close friends of the deceased uh, and also part of the same network as these uh, narcotics traffickers, that this is significant, that perhaps what I'm looking at is a chain that of, of uh, self-employed grocers who all subscribe to the same value system of what we do as our own business and what's good for the family is good, uh, and that it could be a way to transport not just you know, olive oil, but narcotics or during uh, alcohol prohibition could have been alcohol. Alcohol particularly was definitely sold out of little mom and pop groceries like that. And in the coverage of the narcotics busts, it was also being sold out of those little groceries that they owned. Yeah. The, the reason this really caught my attention 
is like the the weddings, the baptisms, that part was familiar to me. I've seen with baptism records, if you know the father is connected to the mob, they're going to choose a godfather who's also in the mob. I mean, it's pretty much a guarantee. Mm-hmm. And with weddings, if the groom is in the mob, his best man it's not going to be his best friend. It's not going to mm-hmm. be his brother. It's going to be some other guy in the mob. So like I've, I've seen this again and again where like, it's not just a coincidence. Like there's definitely a system here. Mm-hmm. But when I saw what you're referring to with the Texas funeral, I had never considered that before, mm-hmm. that there was actually some sort of symbolism to it. Cause again, this is something I have to adjust to culturally because the way we do it here is if you have six grandchildren or specifically grandsons, they're the pallbearers. It's just like a default thing. And that is not, that is not the system. But I hadn't even thought about it until I saw it in your chapter. So it opened up a whole new set of links that I hadn't even considered. There are other links that I look for in the vital records like that. And we talked about naturalization witnesses. I look at chains of migration for certain especially if you say you're going to meet your uncle and it turns out that the guy you named as your uncle isn't your uncle, then I'm going to be pretty sure that that was a padron. Mm-hmm. I also look at, um, when you talk about a marriage and talk about the best man, yeah, yeah, he's probably, but you know who is definitely? The bride's father. Sure. Yep. Yep. That's true. All right. So you recently sort of wrapped up a little series. I think it was a four-part series on the Macaroni Wars, which, first of all, it's a great title. I mean, even if people don't know what that is, they should want to read it because it's called the Macaroni (laughs) Wars. But assuming that the listeners don't know what that is, can you kind of give them a rundown of of what they would see in those articles? Uh, Sure. The Macaroni Wars were fought over a rural macaroni factory. So that sounds like pretty small stakes, but it was a really good business, a very solid investment to have because all those Sicilian men that were working on the sugar plantations that I mentioned going into New Orleans and then they filter out into the countryside, they need to eat. And as you might have read somewhere in your history classes, when Italians came to the United States, they were used to starving in the old country, and now they could finally afford food. And so there was huge markets for all of the Italian delicacies that people wanted when they lived back in Sicily, and now they can finally afford it. So pasta became a really important staple food. And uh, so this macaroni factory was basically printing money. And these two gangsters from Sicily, who were both on the run, both living under aliases, uh, went to New Orleans and they decided they were going to take that macaroni factory from its rightful owner. And they would do that by one of them posing as just an ordinary worker who gets hired by the macaroni factory owner and then works his way up. And then there's like, hey, let's let, let's partner. Let's let's build something together. And then they open a store together and then he becomes a terrible partner to work with so that they can't work together on this factory anymore. They have to give it to a manager to take care of for them, and then they just split the proceeds. And that is a a typical way of a mafia taking over a legitimate business. And this is something that has happened all through history, and it still happens today. They, They will identify a small business that looks like a great place for perhaps laundering money or just as a way of making legitimate money because a mafioso, a mafioso is not going to say no to legitimate money. Mm-hmm. They will get into a business on false pretenses and then they will uh, run up your credit or um, they'll just make themselves so unpleasant that you want to abandon the business to them or sell out to them. And so that's what was going on here with this macaroni factory. These two known, very powerful and dangerous gangsters were in the process of taking over this macaroni factory from Tony Luciano, but he was fighting back. 
And there was a big shootout at his store in New Orleans. And that was only the beginning of the violence. Like it just kept going. And some of the stories are pretty uh, graphic and, and, and horrifying, in fact, to me. Um, so I definitely go read about them on my blog. I'm not going to repeat all of them here because I want you to go read the stories. Well, right, right. Yeah. No, I, I don't want you to, to tell the stories. I want them to read them for themselves. But I wanted to make that very clear to people that what we've been talking about for the last, you know, half hour or so, we get a little down in the weeds, but you don't have to be as wonky uh, to get into the Mafia genealogy blog. Uh, there's a lot of just general history, if you like history or, or true crime. And if you are interested a little bit more, uh, Justin's really good about putting links in the blog to his wiki tree so you can see a little bit more about the individual characters and how they are connected to other people. So, so if you've been scared off by all the tech talk about genealogy and networks, don't worry. The, the blog isn't always that scary. So there's there's plenty for everybody out there. Uh, I don't know if you uh, if you have an idea or if you want to say the idea, but is there another series on the horizon? I don't know what's going to come yet. I think I'm going to get wonky again. Uh, I'm kind of, like I said, I was going over the notes for my book, which is very wonky, mm-hmm. but there's a lot of points in there that I'd like to um, present to a more mainstream mafia-loving audience, people who don't necessarily know all the theory behind it, or things like you know that that theorists still argue about where the mafia began or when. Uh, so I'd like to present some of those ideas on the blog. That might be what's coming next. Okay, that'd be cool. Yeah, you you and I are very similar in that sense, where we're drawn to the histories that have the 50 pages of of end notes rather than you know like the uh the mafia guys who you know they turned over a new leaf and they're going to spill their guts i mean we're we're more into the the nitty-gritty than the actual glamorized part of it uh so you know i'm a little biased but of course i've always liked to see more of that analyzing the the history stuff so oh yeah whatever you got coming up next i know i'm excited about it yeah, I'm definitely more drawn to understand it than to um, just kind of revel in the violence. I want to understand why, mm-hmm. where all that pain came from. Absolutely. Well, so this whole time, it was pretty one-sided. Do you have any questions for me at this point? I do, which is, why Milwaukee? All right. Yeah. Why Milwaukee? A very, sim- very simple answer, really. I live in Wisconsin, and I've always lived in Wisconsin, and... Uh, this is the funniest thing I've told people before, but if they if they don't know, I mm. never had an interest in the mafia until until I really started into this. I did have an interest in genealogy. I had grown up going to courthouses and things like that with my grandmother. So from a very early age, I was familiar with the process. But the mafia thing didn't come until later when I slowly became aware of it and I had this insatiable curiosity and there wasn't really much written on it. So I was like, well, you know, I like I like local history. I like state history. And this is a fascinating subject that no one else has tackled. So I kind of I took it on initially out of curiosity and it spiraled out of control. But it's been great. It's it's really if if it's anything that's going to be my life's work, I'm glad it's this. So it could be worse. How has it affected the way you see the history of Milwaukee or even the whole state? <laughs> that is a great question because I, I don't know if this happens to you, but it, it definitely makes me look at everything from a new angle or a new lens. Mm-hmm. And you start seeing links 
to things that you didn't see before. You start seeing law enforcement, politics, but then, I mean, just average businesses, you start seeing them differently and maybe not necessarily seeing them correctly, but you start wondering like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, I mean, if something comes up in passing while I'm researching a, a murder and like, oh, they were... They worked at the, like a lot of guys in the Milwaukee area worked at American Motors. They built cars like American Motors, totally legit company, but it makes me want to know more about American Motors then. Mm. So it, it does end up putting me on all these weird tangents of learning about different businesses and political figures. So I do, I, I sort of enter into the history from a completely different angle than I think most people do if they're interested in that sort of thing. I think it's fascinating to get into history from a different perspective like that. Uh, I took a class in college that was about the history of welfare. Okay. So like how we provide a social safety net to people who through illness or age or youth even, uh, were not able to support themselves. What do you do with them? And it was a fascinating way to look at a young America as well. Mm -hmm. And the mafia does the same thing. It's like, uh, yeah, America was kind of um, like it says in that in Hamilton that it's like a young, spunky, up and comer, doesn't really have all the resources yet. You know, it's not the America that I grew up in where uh, it's kind of a rich country. It used to be, you know, fighting for that top spot and, um, and what that looked like as a place to grow up. Sure. <laughs> I didn't expect a Hamilton reference to come up, but the... <laughs> <laughs> I wish I could go up with the line. I'm sorry. No, it's, hey, it's nothing wrong with that. Uh, but yeah, and, and just a, a shout out to Wisconsin history because... Wisconsin, first state to pass unemployment insurance. Thanks, Wisconsin. Ooh. <laughs> Talk about your safety net. Yeah. yeah. So I got all of my questions. If you got your questions out, uh, I had a great time. Oh, yeah. I love this. This was fantastic. If you ever get tired of the Milwaukee Mafia podcast, we could just do this. Oh, absolutely. And for anybody who's listened this far, um, of course, check out the Mafia Genealogy website, the blog, the Facebook page. And as always, uh, every episode we do has show notes. So if you check out the show notes for this page, you'll see a links to the Mafia Genealogy blog, but you'll also see links to different books and other topics that we've mentioned throughout the past hour. So if we completely lost you in our nerdy stuff, check that out. Definitely want to thank Justin most of all for coming on, being the first guest, and I could not have asked for a better guest. I we're coming up on an almost an hour of recording, and I could I could do this another hour, but we're, we're <laughs> going to cut it off short here. So, Justin, thank you so much for being our first guest. Thank you, Gavin. It was my pleasure. Thanks for tuning in to the Milwaukee Mafia podcast. Join us next week for another look back at Wisconsin Mafia and true crime history. <laughs>